This is a 3CR podcast. And this is Published or Not. Hannah Kent is well known as an author of meticulous research on women's stories. In burial rites, it was an execution in Iceland. And in Ireland, it would lead to a court case in The Good People. So it's a delight to welcome Hannah back to Published or Not. Hello, Hannah. Hello. Thank you so much for having me. It's a pleasure to be here. Hannah, your book Devotion starts in 1836 in a small community of Kay. Where is Kay? Kay is actually a real place. It's now in Poland and known by a slightly different name. But Kay, in the time of the novel, is a small village in Prussia. Uh, Its inhabitants are German-speaking. They identify as German. But they are essentially a congregation, a very closed community of old Lutherans. In the years prior, the king of Prussia, King Frederick William III, has insisted upon all Protestant churches using his Union Service Church book. He's trying to unite all the Protestant churches. And this has been met with lots of resistance. And initially, the king has sort of said, that's fine, you can do your thing. But as the years have gone on, he's insisted that everyone become part of the Union Church. And the Lutherans who are refused and now known as old Lutherans and they're becoming increasingly persecuted for refusing to subscribe to the king's wishes the pastors are no longer able to practice if they are caught practicing in any sort of pastoral way they're being imprisoned parishioners are being uh, fined and imprisoned also and services have gone underground they've people are holding services in uh, in the forest in the middle of the night they're holding them in the privacy of their own homes but the threat of ongoing oppression is still thick above them The community is under threat, as you've said, but it's still a tight community and there's a family, the Norsborns, the father is taking sermons out in the forest and it's their daughter, Han, who feels the religious tension in the community, but she also feels that she doesn't fit in. So why doesn't she fit into this community? Hannah is an interesting character in that she's absolutely aware of the fact that she is now, when the book opens, she's in her teenage years, she's sort of just past the cusp of adolescence, and she knows that the freedoms of her childhood are behind her now. Her parents, her her elder father and his wife, who was a woman who was very much an important still presence in that congregation, she's very aware of what is expected of her want to try and start fashioning a life for Hannah whereby she will be trained in the domestic arts, she will be ready for the one societal role allowed for her, which is that to be a wife and a mother within this congregation. And Hannah is someone who finds the divine not in the church but in the natural world. So having services within the forest is something that is actually wonderful to her. She loves to be out in the open. She has this curious kind of synesthesia whereby she hears the weather. She feels that the world sings to her. And because of that, she has a very close connection to it. It's really, she communes with nature in every sense of that word. But at the novel's opening, she is really at that point where she is going to have to relinquish those wilder freedoms and start to prepare herself for a life of essentially subservience and and domesticity. I love the way you put this. It's a quote, the burdens of womanhood and its inert domestic companions of needle and thread, bucket and cloth. Yes. (laughs) It's an oddity because her mother is beautiful and she feels she's tall, she's skinny, she's, she, as you say, a cuckoo born to a songbird. 
she has uh, somebody similar her age, Christina Radkes, from a very, very strongly religious family who constantly through her teenage years brings her angst. But there is a fine young man, Hans Punch, who doesn't mind Hans' oddities at all, but you know, they know any teenage interest is denounced as yearning of the flesh which could lead to distance from God. <laughs> but Helen has her twin brother, Matthias, who understands her need to be with nature, not people, and asks, were you listening again? So mm -hmm. what was she listening to? So Matthias or Matthias is Hannah's twin brother who in a sort of a, in a, an appalling irony actually resembles their mother. Um, Hannah doesn't look like anyone in her family. So all her internal concern about being so separate and so different and so othered is sort of manifest even in the way she looks like. But Matthias is being her twin. They, they share a, a recognition of each other and an acceptance of each other and Matthias is really the only person that Hannah feels that she can be herself with but naturally as they've gotten older Matthias has been taken out into the world of fields and labor and Hannah's necessarily has to learn how to be a, a wife and mother and so there is still a distance between them but Matthias is the, probably the only person who remains curious about Hannah's ability to hear the world. And in the place, the part that you've quoted from there, Matthias is, finds Hannah lying underneath the walnut tree in their orchard and knows that she's not just lying there having a rest, that she is engaged in this communion with nature that, that he is aware is so important to her. So Matthias really represents her really one true ally, especially in the face of her sort of her, her need to now suddenly re-engage and socialize with all the other girls her age in the village who don't accept her because they don't understand her and really neither does she them. Well into this community comes a new family. There is distrust as the mother is Wendish. <laughs> so Venz or Wens, uh, now actually more predominantly known as Sorbs, were a Slavic minority who lived in Prussia at that time. They were sometimes suspected by other old Lutheran communities. The Vens were thought to be superstitious. They were rumoured to believe in various folk tales and things like that, that many other Lutherans didn't believe were Christian. Some suspicion and distrust between those who were Vendish or had a, had a, had a Ven background and, and the Germanic old Lutherans. They also have a daughter, just the one daughter. And Thea, even her mother says about Thea, that she dances to her own music. So... <laughs> Fia and Han become very good friends. Finally, the community can apply for passports to leave. And where to, Hanneken? Where to? <laughs> I was really interested in researching this aspect of the book because initially with, when so many of these pastors had to flee, essentially, they had to leave, some of them started going abroad to try and find financial assistance to try and coordinate an, an immigration of these congregations and communities whereby they would be able to practice their faith and freedom. And for this particular community in the book, they their pastor is in London and he meets a man who is willing to finance them so long as they go to the colony of South Australia. So that is where they head out to. And the thought of going to such a different place, I like this from devotion, it was like trying to imagine a new colour. So many of these people had never even seen the ocean, let alone experienced a six-month journey on sea. So 
Yeah, well, six months of traveling difficulty. Firstly, space, serious overcrowding, trunks of necessities have to be unloaded. There's problems with food, water, typhoid, and deaths. This part of the book is called Before. What follows is after. And through circumstances, your writing changes from factual retelling into an imaginative, visual love story. Did you feel the difference in writing this? I did, actually. It was part of the joy of writing this book, I think, was being able to step away from writing a kind of historical fiction that was very much welded to fact and the archive and being able to indulge a much more sort of imaginative, creative aspect of it. I loved writing these these sections in the novel and it was a joy also to allow to to write characters that were able to inhabit different spaces than my previous ones. Inhabit different spaces. We have a ghost, a ghost that can be within the community, ghost goes beyond her community. So she sees different types of love, like two men kissing and can voice what that feeling for her is. The reason why I wanted to incorporate uh, more supernatural elements in this book is because really I was trying to find a way to write a queer love story that wasn't rooted in shame. I knew that writing about a very pious religious community, if I had sort of stuck to a very traditional means of telling a story set in the past, I was necessarily going to have to have elements of self-repression or ignorance or punishment. And as a queer person myself, I felt that, you know, that there was perhaps another alternative that I could do some things, creatively speaking, use language to my favour and actually be able to avoid that particular kind of narrative and instead have one of expansiveness and openness and celebration. And so um, that's the reason why I think this book it takes such a different turn from my previous ones. It's in order to write a story that isn't necessarily just about two young girls being reprimanded or punished, but instead is about the beauty of their deep love for one another. I think you've put that beautifully. (laughs) Well, let's look at this word. The title of the book is devotion. And devotion can be committed love, or it can be to religious fervor. And the Radkeys this family that are quite religious, asked the pastor to search Thea's family home. What are they looking for? So we mentioned earlier the Wrens and how many of them believe them um, to be superstitious. When Thea's family arrive in the village of Kay, this small old Lutheran village in Prussia, there are many people who believe that her mother, Anna Maria, because she is a Wend, is somehow involved in things that are not quite appropriate for the church. She's a midwife. She's, She's quite open about the fact that she uses many herbal cures. And as the time rolls on, people believe she is in possession of a grimoire, a grimoire that actually exists in fact you can find a copy in the state library of south australia called the sixth and seventh books of moses and the reason why they're suspicious of this is because even though the seventh book is largely this sort of compendium of herbal remedies the first touches on things that do sort of speak to the occult there's a conversation with satan apparently there is also uh the the people in the book are suspect that there are ways that you might invoke demons for your assistance and so they start to think uh, that this woman, this Van Anna Maria, holds this book and this is why things are falling in her favour and, you know, as time rolls on, why things don't work in theirs. And so it becomes a, a source of great conflict between the two families. 
I know you're good at research. So I had to do my own on the <laughs> sixth and seventh book of Moses and found out absolutely everything you said was really the controlling good fortune and good health or people contacting the dead. Anna Marie, Thea's mother, had this book and Han knew of this book. And she was told by Thea that as long as it was in your possession, you will not die. And it was interesting how it all fitted in. You know, you had to remember these bits to to, to plot it back. But, you know, talking about this book, there was knowledge about the vegetables that connects Thea's mother with the local Aboriginal tribe. However, how they were treated by others in this very religious, law-abiding community, as you're talking about colonialism to some aspect. Probably one of the reasons why I hadn't written about Australian history. It took me, I guess, two books to warm up to it because there is so much that I hate about Australia's colonial past. There is so much to deplore. There is so much about it which is abhorrent. And I knew that I was never going to speak for First Nations peoples. I was never going to write from the perspective of an Aboriginal character. So I knew that if I were to write a book set in Australia's past, it would necessarily have to be from the perspective of a white oppressor, essentially. And that was something that I wasn't necessarily reluctant to do on that basis, because I think there's ways in which you can, I think it's necessary to talk about the past. But I was conscious of the fact that when you're writing historical fiction, you're privileging a certain perspective. And so I think this is another reason why I wanted to take some creative risks with this novel, because I didn't want my characters to be stuck in ideologies and racism and prejudices of that time. Initially, the the contact and the interactions between the Paramount and the Prussians were friendly. In fact, many sources credit the Paramount with saving the lives of so many Prussian communities when they first came out by showing them ways to read the landscape and to use their resources to dig up yam daisies and catch yabbies and catch possums. And then, of course, I also wanted to show that this initial generosity is essentially met with ongoing theft and a decimation of those very resources. So that was, yeah, one of the reasons why I wanted to position my characters in particular ways But it was also something that I wanted to show because I think in many ways the interactions and the relationship that the Prussians and the Paramount initially had is something that is is quite special and I think actually speaks to so much of the ways in which these communities were supported by those who understood the land and knew it and were in many ways devoted to country. It speaks to a different type of devotion. You've covered all the devotions possibly. (laughs) What happens when there's intense love, when it's taken away? there's intense grief. Mm. It's interesting that I always end up writing about grief, but I do think it is one of those emotions that we are so able to connect with across time. And I think it's also something which is largely inescapable, especially when you're looking at stories of people, you know, on, on a ship for six months who leave behind their home and then come to new places. Necessarily there's going to be separation and grief and loss. But I think also the grief and the loss can speak to what we were talking about earlier the the just the sheer amount of devotion and love that is there in the place it's a marker of the depth of love hannah kent's book devotion in part tells how devout lutherans emigrated to south australia but more so about two young women in the group who find friendship and committed love that follows them beyond the grave thank you very much hannah thank you so much for having me 
And now it's David's turn. Central Australia is remote and desolate, but that seems to accentuate the trauma caused by murder. Such is the case in Margaret Hickey's novel, Cutter's End. So Margaret, welcome to 3CR. Thank you, David. Thank you for having me. The landscape here plays an integral part in this novel, and I just want to read a little extract. It is quiet, isn't it? She said, and startled, Mark wondered for a moment if he'd spoken aloud. Together, they looked out the sliding doors to the land beyond the petrol belt. Thousands of kilometres in every direction of a vast and uncompromising land. Once, she said, I found a woman's shoe out there in the scrub, just one shoe. He felt a dark fluttering deep in his chest. A shoe, he said, strange. A blue high heel, she answered. I looked and looked for its pair. Damn near drove me mad when we first arrived. I searched for that thing for days, found nothing. Maybe it fell out of someone's bag, he said. An animal could have carried it into the scrub. Maybe. She stared at him with a cool gaze. Maybe that's it. The landscape here, and what you've portrayed with that shoe and the emptiness, is almost poetic. It sums up the whole setting. Yeah, you're right. I probably didn't realise that when I was writing it, but I did feel like it was quite palpable, that image of a blue high heel off the Stuart Highway. I'm glad that image resonated with you, David. It also begs a story behind it. There's somebody associated with that blue high heel. Yes. It could be innocuous, but then it could be quite frightening. Yeah, and I think it speaks to that fear that we all have, and there's been a lot documented about the notion of white belonging in Australia, of being in a place where literally no one can hear you scream. And the outback, of course, is the perfect setting to set such a story. And I thought a blue high heel fits so incongruously in that landscape that it seemed to me a good thing to put in the book to somehow show a sense of isolation. You also tease the audience here. There's a prologue which describes the last moments of a woman dying alone. The first chapter then is about a female hitchhiker. And then we have a police report about a body being discovered. You tease your audience because we jump to conclusions here. What's going yes, on? Yes, we do, don't we? What I am interested in is genre and the conventions of genre. So, uh, for example, at university, I teach Gothic literature and I'm always interested in the conventions of that genre. And I, uh, I did look up the conventions of crime literature and I thought what one of those is, you know, a body must be found at the start. That's kind of a, a given in, in um, crime. But I wanted to play around with that a little bit and kind of circumvent that genre a little bit. So I did that very purposefully. Because the actual body or the murder being investigated is of a man. The novel is actually a cold case investigation 20 years after the event, but clues would be hard to come across in the outback, wouldn't they? Yes, and that was, of course, 
great for me as a writer because then I can, if the clues are hard to come by, then I sort of have to come up with things that are predominantly human, so stuff like photographs rather than actual forensic evidence, which I would have needed if I had have set the crime in the present. So I was kind of, um, I, I'm, as I said, I'm, I'm not a crime person and I, I don't know that much about crime. So I, it was easier for me that the clues are human and tangible, I suppose, rather than ones of a scientific nature. It was one of the early criticisms um, when I got it back from my editor, not criticisms, suggestions that I did need more stuff for, for the forensics. So I had to kind of do a little bit more research and put those in later on in the novel but certainly because it was 30 years away and the nature of the place where it's windy you know physical evidence can be lost quite easily in the desert that was kind of a boon for me. Detective Senior Sergeant Mark Ariti is brought back from long service leave to investigate this cold case but he's a flawed character another Mm. sort of trope from the genre and he's married to Kelly and she serves a very important role. I was interested in Kelly so Kelly at the same time they're kind of drifting apart this couple and Kelly is a lawyer who represents victims of family violence and women and she's becoming increasingly angry in relation to how those women are treated. So running through the whole story is the same time a case that Kelly is working on, but she updates him on every every now and then. And it kind of mimics and mirrors the same thing that, um, or the same sort of issues that Mark Ariti is going through as he investigates his, the crime from um, 30 years before. Because as you suggested, there's a vulnerability where women are concerned which brings us to two other characters in the story, Ingrid and Joanne, who Mm. 20 years earlier had been hitchhiking. Now, Mm. what is the wisdom of hitchhiking or the dangers thereof? And how does it fit into the image of Australia today? Well, that was sort of the whole inspiration for me writing the novel at the start, because I used to, as a young person in the late 80s and early 90s, I used to hitchhike a lot. I used to hitchhike all the time and I hiked up and down that Stuart Highway uh, many times in between university breaks or I would work in outback pubs one time we hitchhiked from Adelaide up to Darwin and then got a plane to Timor and traveled across those islands well there there was a real sense of adventure and of course that all was coming to an end and did come to an abrupt end with Ivan Malat where we'd get lifts with people and they would say to us haven't you heard about those girls going missing on the east coast and invariably we found out they were the victims of Ivan Malat. And really Australia, it was this sort of sense of freedom that was coming to an end. I don't see many hitchhikers now, David. I, I don't know about you, but certainly when I was hitchhiking, there were, there were loads of us. But there's mm. now a connection between Mark, Ingrid and Joanne, isn't there? Yeah, the reason why Mark is called to reinvestigate this case is because he knows the two of them. They grew up in the same sleepy town. And there's another trope, of course, of crime literature, these common connections between characters. 
So, but it played quite nicely because do people change or don't they? I'm always interested in that, in that in the nature nurture kind of thing. So those connections were really interesting for me to write and quite fun to write. There's an intensity then that builds with this investigation. It's heightened as we learn of several more deaths of women on the Stuart mm. Highway. So these aren't immediate mm. murders, these are cold case murders which actually then links us to the prologue. Yeah, so again, that's playing with the whole genre of the timeline and a non-lineal timeline. I mean, it's true. A lot of people go missing in Australia and the late, and it plays deeply into our fears of young women and the outback. You only have to look at the popularity of films like Wolf Creek or uh, even earlier, the writer, and my PhD was in landscapes of literature and I was really interested in the writings of Barbara Bainton, who very early on around the time of Henry Lawson wrote about the fears that women feel by themselves in the bush. And I think that hasn't changed really. There's something deeply unsettling if you're by yourself in that kind of area. And I kind of wanted to play on that and to think about what has happened to all those women that have gone missing that we don't even know about and women who are less privileged and perhaps are not white or, you know, um, how, how do we pay service to them? We also have another sort of cold case because it's Ingrid who's actually investigated original murder. So now we've sort of got two investigations running simultaneously. Yeah. What I absolutely did not want to do, and it goes against everything, is to have women that are sort of powerless. So I wanted to give these women, these characters, some agency and really give some power back to them. So that was the driving force for Ingrid. And I thought that's what sort of a person she would be like. Under all this, I was kind of thinking, where does anger go or where does grief go? And I'm, I'm surprised there's not more vigilante stuff going on, to be honest, with all this violence against women. So, yeah, it, it stemmed from a place of giving agency back to the victims. Now, there's also a subtlety in the clues you provide, something as simple as a swing in a tree. How did you plant mm. these clues in? What was your thinking here? Well, I wasn't really thinking, to be honest. I don't plan out, to my detriment probably, I don't really plan when I write. So I sit down at my desk when I can and I carry on from the last piece that I wrote and I try. it's quite an organic process really. So things come to me as they would to the characters kind of. So I imagined the swing in the back um, and I imagine you know what that would be if someone lied about a swing so I tried to plant red herrings but in a way that you know some of them worked and some of them didn't I had to cut out some stuff and, and I had to cut out a lot actually but in terms of planning I, I, it was only when I, I went to Penguin and to the copy editors that that they got back to me and said some of these work and some of them don't so I owe a lot to my editors actually Ultimately, then, justice becomes the theme throughout mm. the novel. What is justice in such yes. cases? Yeah, what is justice? Because there's a difference, isn't there, between truth, what is true, and what is just. And I don't think the two are necessarily one and the same. I, I don't know the answer to that, in short. But I do think that anger and grief probably and while I certainly don't agree with an eye for an eye or anything like that I can see how that would happen 
Uh, I can see how people would feel like that. I don't know if we've got our justice system right, just right yet. Well, if the listener and reader want to find out more, if they want to find out who killed the male gentleman whose body was discovered and who was responsible for the deaths of the women, uh, all cold case murders, of course, they need to read Cutter's End. The author is Margaret Hickey. And it's a Penguin Random House release. So That's correct. Margaret, thank you very much for talking with me today. Thank you, David. It's been a real pleasure. You've just been listening to Published or Not on 3CR. You've been listening to a 3CR podcast produced in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au.